1: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: Full contact. In association with Mitsubishi Motors. Drive your ambition.
3: Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. With less than a week to go until the end of one, if not the most challenging years in recent history for rugby, we'll be looking at how it's been affected and how it can bounce back in 2021. England's men had a year to remember. They bounced back from a World Cup final defeat to lift the Six Nations and then followed that up with success in the Automations Cup. And we'll be reflecting on their impressive year and analysing how they can build on it for 2021. It's also been a year to remember for England's women, who went another year undefeated, lifting the Grand Slam in the process. The Red Roses have soared to number one in the world rankings and will be speaking to their head coach, Simon Middleton, about his preparations for next year's World Cup, which is just nine months away. 2021 will also see the return of the British and Irish Lions. Warren Gatland leads the side for the third consecutive time, this time for a test series against world champions South Africa. Head of this series, it's been confirmed that South Africa's four Super Rugby franchises will be taking part in the Rainbow Cup, which is an end-of-season tournament alongside teams from the Pro 14. We'll be speaking to the leading South African journalist Craig Ray about the state of South African rugby in the lead-up to the series next year. We'll also be rounding up the weekend's action in the Gallagher Premiership and looking at how the competition will be looking heading into the new year. As ever, we'll be taking a close look at some of the work being done at grassroots level as part of the Mitsubishi Volunteer Recognition Programme. And alongside me today, former England winger Topsy Ojo. Hi, Topsy. Hey,
4: Brian, how you doing? Have a good Christmas. Yes, I did. I did. It was good. It was uh short. Sure, didn't feel very Christmassy this year, <laughs> of course, but uh, you only
3: get two 4-year-olds then it'll feel Christmasy mate. I tell you, oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no,
4: ben, it's my my 6 and 4-year-old very very excited
3: They. Oh, the, that, that's what makes it, isn't it? Yeah. I I, yeah, I still definitely. get the feeling though you could buy them boxes and they'd be play with them as happily if they were big enough.
4: Yeah, up to the point <laughs> where they can now put their own list together. So if they don't get on, then, <laughs> yeah. then you get caught out.
3: Look, I think as a rugby fan, as a rugby player, as a rugby anything, uh, completely put a natural year 2020. How do you feel the game is set going to 2021?
4: Yeah, it's it's been a tough one. I, I think where we are right now, <laughs> I thought about it, there's almost there's signs of life in the game you know i think with everything that's happened even with coming back as well it didn't quite feel like the game we were used to the game that we love but i think the the Heineken Champions Cup in particular over the last couple of weeks has really kind of breathed some life back into things and everybody's excited about rugby can be what it should be really so I think we take huge confidence from that I think there's still a lot of challenges to overcome you know this this pandemic isn't going away anytime soon so you think of fans and the impact on businesses I know there's been grants but that's still a tough hurdle to get over of course you know you think of the community game as well and everything underneath that elite level still trying to figure a way back so the impact on rugby is still going to be huge and we're kind of going to see those ramifications for a long time coming but where we are right now i think you know there's a pulse there's yeah. signs of life in the game and there's plenty to look forward to in 2020 i mean i think
3: i think uh, we ought to uh, give a note of recognition uh, to the people at the RFU the WRU the Irish rugby and scottish rugby union for just keeping the game alive um, people think these people do nothing i know that uh, people from all the unions have been working tirelessly with governments trying to get things through the door. The very fact that some internationals took place was not a given. The same for Premiership Rugby and the Pro 14 and the uh, um, the, the European bodies. It's been a hard and a tough one. And uh, we've been going through the volunteer programme um, with Mitsubishi, but I'd just like to say to all the people who are kicking over with the junior clubs who are listening Please keep doing what you're doing because there's a chance that you know if if your club goes, it may never come back, and uh, we we really don't want to see that. I, wrote, I wrote, finally I wrote an article today for the Telegraph about a chance for junior rugby to reset itself, and I've become uh, very much aware junior clubs have been uh, I've spoken to over the past eighteen months, two years. A lot of them have been saying, look. Um, we didn 't understand what we were getting into when we were going into the national leagues. We thought it would be a bit more competitive and so on what we didn 't realize was if we jumped to league, we suddenly find ourselves having to travel four hours there and four hours back to a fixture, or maybe even having a hotel bill you know which for junior clubs is huge and I just uh, the the Lancashire League has started doing this, and other leagues are going to start doing it uh, Junior club's saying look we don 't want this." We are, we were happy to be in a merit table type thing and play our local fixtures, with local derbies, with local rivalries against the same people, because that way you build, you know, friends and and and, and opponents that you that you know. Uh, it's better for clubs, it's better for bars. It's, it's cheaper and so on. So I, I just urge any junior clubs that are thinking about this to give it serious consideration, because it's a way of getting back to the spirit. It's not for everyone. If everyone wants to, some people want to to to, to try nationally. It's absolutely fine. But i do actually think there ought to be um the mechanism there is there i just think there ought to be more clubs avail themselves of of uh, and get back to what they they want to be which is more uh, you know it's not not just the spirit of rugby, but it, it's more like the junior grassroots stuff that uh that, that a lot of them want we'll be discussing the domestic game shortly but from England's perspective has been a pretty successful year. Uh, topsy, they got a bit of stick for the way they played, uh, particularly in the Autumn's uh, Autumn Nations Cup. But uh, how well placed are, are they, do you think?
4: I think they're very well placed. I mean, it, it's at the moment it looks like a straight shootout between them and France. Um, I know there was a lot of talk about their style of play, you know, even m- myself, you know, watching particularly that France game at the end you kind of thought there were opportunities for them just to move the ball a bit more, you know, to play a bit of faster tempo. Um, I guess how I summarised it at the end was if you looked at how their year went, they lost one game in the 12 months. Um, they've won two tournaments. So they know how to win games, you know, and that's when you're a winning team, you win, whether you win well or you win ugly, you're still winning and everybody would take that. I, I think in camp they will know that they need to find new levels to their game. You know, this will work for so long, but some team will figure them out. France nearly did, and they did get over the line, but it wasn't very comfortable. So it's about, I think, evolving, looking at different ways. If plan A isn't working, are they able to change tactics mid-game? Are they able to play a different style of rugby just to keep opposition on their toes? Um, But going into the Six Nations again, everyone's playing catch-up. You know, England, if we say, okay, they didn't get out of second, third gear, but they won the tournament and only France really caused them any sort of trouble. So for the other teams, it's a question of, can you stop us? Can you answer the questions we posed? And we still got other levels to go to beyond where we are at the minute. So a lot of growth to come from this England team and they're definitely in a really good place.
3: Well, there were standout performers. I mean, uh, Johnny and me, I was rewatching and doing a bit of research for this. So I, I watched uh, some of his tries from the, the six nations and, and, you know, Absolutely tremendous uh, um, contributions from him. Mare Toji, of course. England are lucky they've got two very good hookers as well. Jamie George and Luke Calendicchi are both uh, outstanding players. Um, is there anyone else you'd uh, note for mention?
4: it's tricky, I mean, like I say, with the way it went, nobody, I mean, the guys, you, the guys you've mentioned, Mara was probably the one who was head and shoulders standout performer every single week regardless of how the team went performance wise his performances were nine and ten out of ten every single time um I was very pleased to see Jack Willis get his shot I think you know if you look at him being picked a couple of years ago getting injured working his way back to fitness player of the season premiership player of the season and then taking his opportunity as well you know he's in a really good place now in a very competitive back row I was quite pleased with Billy Vulopora as well again another one that's had a bit of a spotlight on him and his form and his fitness and I I think you know everyone's expecting him to be barnstorming every single game and he's right he said it himself he gets targeted a lot more but if he only makes a couple of meters and he takes out three players he's creating space for somewhere else he's still doing damage and I think he's just quietly going about his work now so those guys yeah definitely I, I think you know they just re-established themselves as key cogs within Eddie's Eddie's team.
3: Well, since we uh, we, we last spoke, England uh, have seen their draw. They're in a pool uh, with Argentina and Japan for 2023. General consensus that's a favorable draw, not just because of the group itself, but you know, where they came, you know, in in, in who plays who, presuming that they make first or second in the group.
4: Yeah, I think if you uh, if you looked at it and looked at rankings, look at progression through the tournament, you would say definitely favourable. I, I would be, imagine that they'll be very aware of what, new, what Argentina have just done to New Zealand and what Japan have done in the previous two World Cups. So by all means, in terms of, I guess, rankings and tournament, yeah, it looks good. But those are some really, really hard games to get through. And it only takes one slip up. And all of a sudden, you're qualifying second, and you've got a much more difficult route through to the final. So, good on paper, but a lot of work to be done. Well, as we're,
3: we're having a bit of a review of the year, let's give a shout out to the Argentinians' first ever win uh, against the All Blacks, two draws uh, against Australia. You know, tremendous uh, performances from them, especially bearing in mind the length of time they went before uh, you know when when they didn't actually play a game. So that's. A tremendous, you know, for them domestically, um, Exeter two trophies. Do you realise that some some of the Exeter Chiefs players um, won four things last year? Yeah,
4: we're <laughs> Just picking up trophy after yeah. trophy. <laughs> oh, gosh, well, I mean, we'll, we'll,
3: we'll, we'll take a deep look at the Lions tour later on. But from your experience, how much does having a Lions tour on the horizon uh, feature uh, in the minds of players heading into the Six Nations? in the months beforehand?
4: I'd say it's huge. I mean, this this is your shop window, especially for a lot of guys. I mean, we, we there is experience, there is past of players getting in just based on their club form, you know, hitting a real purple patch at the latter stage of the seasons. But this is the best of the best, the international standard players. And the Six Nations is your window to demonstrate that you can play at that level consistently, both home and away. So it's a real opportunity to put a marker down, I guess, especially if maybe you don't have that credibility in the bank. If you've not been on a previous line tour, you're not a seasoned international. If you're looking to really make your mark and really press your claims, the Six Nations is the perfect opportunity for you. So, yeah, I think a lot of players will have an eye on that tournament knowing that they need to impress if they want to make the play.
3: Well, of course, the PR answer for players, and which is what they'll all come out with, is no, I have no idea about this. I, I just have to play the game that's in front of me and everything will take care of itself. Because I tell you, from a player's point of view, when you've got the opposite, your opposite number um, who is up there, you're number one, he's number two, or, or you're around there, it's that bit extra. There are definitely, I don't care what they say.
4: Ah, oh, no, you're right, 100%. I think they will say all the right things in the media and in the press because a lot of the build up will focus on the lions and those battles and those matchups. But you know, once they're on the pitch, it's man V man, you've got my shirt almost and I'm taking it off you. So <laughs> expect <laughs> a lot of those subplots to, to evolve through the tour. I mean, it makes it more exciting. You Absolutely. Know, we don't know. We don't know if we're going to have fans in there again, you know, fingers crossed we might have something, but I guess plans will be that they're not there. So we need kind of these little subplots, these dramas unfolding and the battle for Lions shirts yeah, is huge. It's near top of the list.
3: I mean, if it if it goes ahead, but it doesn't have crowds. I, I I can I can see the merit in it. I understand that the the economic imperative will still be there because the Lions is hugely successful in terms of sponsorship and the and the, and the thing it brings. But of all the rugby experiences, this is the one. That relies, in my opinion, um, on on the support that's given because of the amalgam of of nations and and all sorts of things. People coming together, and it going well. People falling out and it, not going well, and so on and so on. And I, I'd still wanted to go ahead, but I'd be I'd be extremely I'd be extremely sorry uh, if if there were no travelling funds.
4: Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to imagine it without fans. I mean, that that's part of it, you know, that tour, being away from home for weeks on end, um, having fans from all different nations coming and following you, you know, that, that's part of what makes it so special. And even you see it watching at home, like that sea of red in the crowd that's all travelled together to support the Lions. I mean, it's hard to imagine it going ahead without fans, but you know, I, I guess we we have to prepare for all eventualities.
3: I'll, I'll just give you uh, you and uh listeners a very quick example of what I mean by this. One of my one of my mates, he's retired now, but he was a a high flying lawyer uh, in the city, uh, cash rich, time poor, and he decided that he wanted to go out to the uh, 2001 Lions tour, and uh, he uh, he said, well. I, I, I've just got this amount of time. He said to his secretary, just book me on something. I don't care what it is, last minute. She she could only get him, I say only, she, she got him uh, into a package thing uh, and he became really good mates for the 10 days he was there with four Welsh guys who'd saved up a few quid a week for four years to go on the tour. They had nothing really socially uh, or economically in common but they became great mates and they had a fantastic time so I'd just like to see and hear about more of that maybe, maybe it won't and I suppose the bigger thing is that it actually goes ahead well we will see well South Africa's four Super Rugby franchises are to take part in an end of season tournament with teams from the Pro 14 called the Rainbow Cup from mid-April um, If it sounds like another wacky initiative, it probably is, but who knows? Um, Because sometimes these come off. Why don't we speak to someone who does know? It's Craig Ray, sports editor for Daily Maverick in South Africa, who joins us now. Hello, Craig. Hi, Brian, how are you? All right, mate. Look, whenever a tournament wants to expand, whether it seems to be the Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere, South African sides are always mentioned as these were coming in. There's going to be a new format, and Sanzara, for this initiative and that initiative... Uh, would I be wrong in saying um, that this is another one of the oh there's a much more substance to this
5: I think there's more substance to this one. I think the previous um, incarnation with the cheetahs and the kings going into pro fourteen was was really South Africa trying to fix a problem in terms of trying to find somewhere for the cheetahs and the kings to play um, and pro fourteen offered that solution this time around it's it 's a far more strategic uh, long term Plan to align with the northern hemisphere and take a, a big step away from the Sanzar Alliance. Um, yeah, with, with uh, you yeah, with know with South Africa's best teams uh, available. You know, considering so many South African players are also playing in Europe, um, there's a natural alignment there. Um, and I think the type of rugby that uh, South Africa plays might be better suited to a northern hemisphere type game as well. So. Uh, I think it's a far more strategic decision uh, than the previous one.
4: Uh, Greg, what sort of competition have the South African Stars had since rugby's comeback? I know it's been tough with COVID and everything, but how have the players been able to get back up and running?
5: Yeah, look, we uh, they were quite late back into into competition. Uh, they, they had a, a hastily sort of rehashed Super Rugby tournament called Super Rugby Unlocked. Which basically featured the uh, the the South African four South African franchises uh, plus the Cheetahs in a in a round robin format to declare a Super Rugby champion in South Africa. That was really just to feed the beast that is TV and and uh, you know give the broadcaster some sort of product. Um, And that was won by the Bulls. Jake White back at the Bulls, first trophy the Bulls have won in a in a decade actually, Uh, not that yeah you know, we could read too much into that, but the bulls were actually quite quite good under jake white in, in that tournament and there's a, uh you know it took a little while to get going the players had had a hard lockdown and there wasn't a lot of uh time before they were on the field playing and that's now um that ended and that's now been replaced by the curry cup which you which you all know uh and and this is the first time in the hundred and twenty nine history one hundred and twenty nine year history of the curry cup that it's being played through the height of summer. You could have a final being played in 40-degree 40, 40 heat. It's, it's, it's ludicrous, but, you know, it's... Well, everything in this year has been ludicrous in many ways. And, uh, again, it, it goes down to keeping the players active and also yeah, keeping the broadcasters and the sponsors happy, happy where you can.
4: Yeah, I guess so. And given all the disruption, you know, if, if we look ahead a bit, you know, the Springboks haven't played since the World Cup final, so is there any kind of fear that they might be a bit undercooked come the summer in the Lions Tour? And what, what's the, the general feeling about the Lions series, you know, the prospect? Are they going to be fans as well? Is there any, any news around that?
5: Well, first of all, I think I've actually written a piece for uh, one of your publications over there coming out soon. And the Lions Tour is vital to the South African economy, uh, rugby economy. Uh, the Lions Tour has to go ahead. It's, it's not an exaggeration to say, this is a word that's been used by officials at the highest levels of South African rugby. The sport could implode if the Lions Tour doesn't happen. I mean, there's a massive amount of money at stake. And when you consider South African rugby lost over or, or um, you know, took pay cuts and in the industry, uh, you know, cut over a billion rand from the industry in 2020 and the Springboks you know, didn't play at all, Springboks make up 64% of Saru's income. Uh, through commercial rights and broadcast rights. So for the, the fact that the Springboks didn't play was a massive um, blow. And if they don't get on the field in 2021, you know, the rugby industry could collapse. That's, and that's not an exaggeration to say that. And it's already altered quite drastically uh, you know, because of COVID. The second part of that is, will the Lions Tour go ahead? Well, at this stage, it does seem to be you know, going ahead. But whether fans will be allowed or not is a, is a is still up in the air. Um, I think most British traveling fans will probably have a COVID vaccination by then, but South Africa is months behind in the COVID vaccination uh, queue, if you like, and it's highly unlikely that South Africans are going to be vaccinated en masse by, by that stage, by July next year. So what the travel restrictions will look like, whether we will be into a third wave of COVID, no one knows, but yeah, it's vital that that tour goes ahead. And then the third part with the, whether assuming let's work on the assumption the Lions tour does go ahead, will the Springboks be, will the Springboks be ready? Well, it's yeah they 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 working hard to find a couple of weekends for test matches prior to the uh, the Lions series, and I'm not 100% sure who they're going to find and, and where they're going to slot those in, but Rusty Erasmus, the director of rugby at is a smart man, um, and know Albert, the Springbok coach, is. Is also working on it, so they might get a couple of games in. But worst case scenario, I spoke to Jacques Noble last week. He said, "Well, you know, if we've got to if we've got to play the Lions in the first test on on the 24th of July next year, and it's our first test in 20 months, well, that's that's how it is. Those are the cards we've been dealt. There's no point in you know, um, crying about it. Um, if that's the reality we face, that's the reality we face, and we've just got to get on with it." Uh, yeah, one thing he did mention, and I think this is true, every The Springboks didn't play this year, so they had no chance to to kick on. But they wouldn't really have kicked on from November uh, 2019 in July 2020. They they would have almost been starting again. The type of rugby they played in the knockout stages of of the World Cup in 2019 probably wouldn't be the type of rugby and the style of rugby they would have looked to play in July of 2020. Um, What they have missed out on, of course, is opportunities to give players experience at test level. And to uh, continue giving you know, established players more uh, more tests under the belt, so they've lost a lot of time in terms of gaining experience. But when it comes to the Springboks, you know they're never together for the first six months of the year anyway. Um, so they will be a little undercooked, but I don't think that will be the biggest issue with them. It's probably about more important that South African players are on the field in whatever competitions, the Rainbow Cup. And, and some domestic competitions actually play. So that when the Lions do arrive, they will at least be battle hardened in terms of, of, of playing rugby.
3: Uh, just finally, before you go, Craig, um, what well, could you tell me about the story surrounding the CEO of uh, uh, Saru, Yuri Roo, who, I mean, um, ordered to repay 1.8 million to a former employer? Uh, people mm. saying he should resign. What, what the hell's been going on? Well, Brian, you're
5: a lawyer, and maybe you can help me with this one because um, it's. Uh, I, I've sort of. I've actually been going through the judgment, uh, and you know, I'm just a simple rugby writer, so uh, legal judgments are sometimes quite tricky. But um, you know, it's, it's about uh, allegedly. Uh, it was an arbitration, so it wasn't a court case between Stellenbosch University, known as Marty's and uh, and Yuri Rue who was the um, chief financial officer of the rugby club at Marty's between 2002 and 2010. And he's been found by this arbitrator to have misappropriated funds that were channeled from four cost centers to the rugby club and other portions and and not in the correct way. Other sections of the rugby club. Now, reading this this judgment, I'm battling to understand why he's got to pay the money back. Because it doesn't, Appear that he's pocketed any of the money according to this judgment. It's just that money was allocated from cost centres to another to another part, uh, another cost centre um, that wasn't uh, uh, signed off by some sort of senior accountant. So mm-hmm. it's, it's quite a complex, you know, um, financial case <laughs> that I uh, will probably need to go into. But you know, it, it, it's quite curious that you know, Sevenbus University. This is something that happened eighteen odd years ago it started happening according to this judgment um you know and that's only been to arbitration it haven't been to court now why would you pay money back if you haven't actually taken the money uh, you know so i'm so bottom line is it doesn't it's not a good but to, on the other hand i would say Uri Ru's done a great job in navigating south african rugby through these covert times i mean the industry could well have collapsed if there wasn't some decisive leadership so I think he's he's shown his his work as a leader, certainly from a South African rugby point of view. But he does have this card of this this Selenbosch University judgment hanging over him. He is going to appeal it, by the way. Oh,
3: I'm um, glad I'm glad he, he, I'm glad he, he cleared he, that up because from from the outside, I mean, initially it sounds like fraud, doesn't it? But but we're not we're not talking. It doesn't yeah. seem we're talking. You know, about that. which do malfeasance in administration at best. So, anyway, uh, keep yeah. us up to date with that. Um,
5: yeah, I'll do my best, Brian.
3: <laughs> let's hope uh, Let's hope we can get together um, uh, when the Lions come over. It'd be, be great to do that.
5: be great, yeah. We'll step in. Let's hope they make it.
3: Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Craig Gray, sports editor for the Daily Maverick in South Africa. Uh, Topsy, we, we spoke to Sean O'Brien a little earlier in this series, and he suggested that Mauro Itoji would be a standout pick as captain for the Lions. Um, other people have been disagreeing. Um, is it too far out to, to make a pick? And if so, uh, why? Uh, if not, what, who would you pick?
4: I mean, I'd say Marrow is definitely in the mix, just on the basis of if you look at the four home nations captains, I guess who were named for the Autumn Nations Cup, like... Are any of them automatic picks for the test team? I I mean, Owen Farrell would probably be the closest one, I would say. So his would probably be the other name I would put in the mix at the moment. If I think about how Gatland would probably want to play the game as well, I mean, I I don't know, I'm guessing, but on previous form.
3: well, I mean, um, Hogg would be in the mix, but I've never been a fan of of, uh, captains at fullback.
4: Yeah, there is that. And I mean, I, I'm a big Liam Williams fan as well. I mean, Hogg is, is, is test quality. We know that. But, you know, I, I think there's competition there. Um I think, yeah, I, I'd put Owen Farrell probably just ahead of Marrow. Only on the basis that, as it stands, Marrow is yet to captain his club or his country. I know he's a leader anyway. And he well, he captained the 20s, it.
3: didn't he? When they won the... Yes,
4: he did. The he the did. And he... He doesn't need it in title, of course. You look at what he gets through his work, and you think you know he's a leader. But I think that may or may not just have a slight play on whether he gets a nod ahead of somebody else who is an established international captain.
3: Um, well, talking about Owen Farrell, what um, will he i mean—is um, Gatland likely to have a? Um, a wild card streak with uh, cho- choosing Finn Russell. And if that were the case, um, what do you see the test positions shaking out as?
4: Oh, it's, 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 I, I would love to see it's Finn It's the great thing about lines, Lions,
3: isn't it? You can just talk about it endlessly.
4: I, I know you can, like the combinations. You know, it's, it's picking a fantasy team, isn't it? I mean, Finn is just capable of magic. He's capable of playing the game differently to any of the other fly halves. Um... Of course, with that risk, <laughs> you know it's either going to be the best piece of rugby you've ever seen or it's going to be an intercept and they're running the length. So I think there's there's that decision to be made. I, I think you take him because, again, you know, if I think of what a Gatlin team looks like, if they're in an arm wrestle with South Africa or maybe they need something to change the game, there's probably no better player in Europe at the moment to do that. And you only look at his performances for Racing, what he's done. He's, he's transformed that team and they absolutely love him. He's transforming Scot- Scottish rugby as well. He just makes them a different side and he can have that impact on the Lions. So I would love to see him on the plane and see him out there doing what he's done so far.
3: Well, the former Lions coach, Sir Ian McGeechan has picked four players who he reckons could break into the squad not established as yet. Ollie Lawrence of England, Jamie Ritchie of Scotland, Caelan Doris of Ireland and Louis Rees-Zamit of Wales. Who? Which of those do you think has got the best chance?
4: Of those four, it's Doris. For me, I I think a man, you know, a young man, you know, he's a very early into his test career. But if you look at what he was able to do in that island team in terms of ball carrying, in terms of disrupting. Again, if you think going over to South Africa, the the back row battle is going to be huge. You know, you think Vermeulen, think of Khaleesi, Dutoy, those sorts of players. And Doris is proving that he can handle himself regardless of who he's come up against. You know, he's Falatao, he's played against him, Vunipola. The Six Nations, as we spoke about earlier, the Six Nations is going to be big for him. If he comes out with a glowing reputation now that he's really established himself as a force, his name is right in the conversation for one of those back row seats.
3: It will be interesting for Ollie Lawrence to see if uh, Jones wants to go with that big option. Um, you know, in terms of England's midfield, how the how he decides that that will shake down. Because um, I, I know that Jones has always liked. Uh, the option there for, for variety of reasons and so on. So whether he gets a chance or not will be a different matter. Look, we've been talking about South Africa's preparations or lack thereof. Um, in that sense, uh, no better or worse than the Lions will be having to come together. <laughs> and that's all, always one of the uh, things that uh, is a delicious prospect of it going well. Um, and sometimes it goes disastrously wrong. But who, who would you make favourites?
4: Right now, the Lions, I'd say, overwhelming favourites, just in case of where we are in time. You know, I, you know, everything is tough at the minute, but th- we seem to have things sorted. We're playing games. The guys are getting their competition. I think as the host nation, South Africa have so many hurdles to overcome before we even get on the plane and get out there. So, I mean, as it stands, the Lions would be favourites, but, you know, I'm you know, just listening earlier I mean what Craig was saying about you know if the Lions are their first game imagine if they do have fans there imagine the emotion we know how emotional rugby is for South Africa as a nation and a sport so you would never ever write them off but in terms of preparation the Lions are well ahead at the moment
2: Full contact in association with Mitsubishi Motors Everyone's ambitions are different You can climb to the top Or you could take on uphill battles of a different kind. You can explore for hundreds of miles. Or you could begin a bigger journey. You can make time fly. Or you could make it stand still. The Mitsubishi SUV Range. Drive your ambition.
3: In partnership with England Rugby... Mitsubishi Motors runs a volunteer recognition programme to provide the rugby community with opportunities to recognise and reward the volunteers who are the heartbeat of the game. Throughout the autumn and winter, in association with Mitsubishi, I've been chatting to a selection of rugby volunteers to hear their stories and to shine a light on the brilliant work they've been doing in these most challenging of times. For our tenth and final edition, we're going to interview... Kirsten Flower from the RFU National Youth Council, and she's also on the Diversity and Inclusion Working Group. Hello, Kirsten. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Okay, now then, uh, to people of a certain age, and by the way, I'm not one of them. Oh, I am of a certain age, but I'm not one of these people. Uh, <laughs> when you say things like National Youth Council and uh, Diversion and uh, Diversity and Inclusion, their eyes roll, The oh, God, why do we need these? <laughs> why, why, why do we need an RFU National Youth Council?
1: I think we certainly need a youth council because youths are the future of rugby. Um, youths, firstly, predominantly make up a huge portion of the playing uh, demographic. Um, obviously, 16 to 24-year-olds is a massive demographic of uh, rugby. Also, youths will be the future of rugby in terms of um, coaching, refereeing, um, being part of the governance structures of rugby. Um so if we don't invest in youth, we won't have you know future leaders of the game.
3: I absolutely agree. I say that to people at my uh, old boys club. Stop moaning, um, you know, because these people are going to take on the roles that you've taken on, you know, for for so many years. But what the aim of the council and the role? What does it actually do? What do you do? What does it do?
1: Um, so we're basically a a voluntary consultative body, um, and so we represent the sixteen to twenty five year old um, age group. And so basically we, as members of the Youth Council, are in that age group. I'm 22, um, and so we work with, like, many RFU sectors um, across the game, and we essentially aim to provide insight into the youth perspective and to ensure that young people are actually involved in the decision-making pro- process of the game. So it's about getting yo- young people to make decisions about the game, which they are actually heavily involved in.
3: I've got a 19-year-old, a 13-year-old, and two 4-year-old daughters, and the way they say and approach things, the way they read things, the way they consume things, is very different to me. Yeah. I don't think, in the end, the substance of what we believe and all is is is, is that different. But it does mean things to them because they um, are used to it being expressed in certain ways. Therefore, marketing, therefore the message you send out and so on, for that age group, you know, I I would say because the the natural assumption is everyone thinks like me, but they don't. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's important that, that, that these things are relayed in, in that way. So is it partly part that?
1: Yes, essentially. I think it's, it's essential that we have youth voice in rugby because we are such a big part of the playing proportion. Um, but it's exactly, you hit the nail on the head, that how you think is going to be completely different to how I think. And your experience of rugby is completely different to mine. Um, and so obviously you are, you're a great hooker and I'm a hooker. And your experience of the game is probably far different from mine. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's about seeing what young people think in terms of how we think and then comparing that to perhaps people who are involved in the governance of the RFU and saying, where's that gap there and what can we add from our p- opinion?
3: Yeah, It's so funny. People, people of my age and, and even older always saying, what we need is, is more money, we need this, we need that, we need that. But they're, they're not willing to, to listen to how you yeah. get there. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about the Diversity and Inclusion Working Group because um, um, you're part of that. What's the aim and, and what's your role?
1: Uh, so basically the Diversity and Inclusion Working Group has been around for a few years um, and so they've essentially been put in place by the RFU and the council to look at how we can create more diversity within RFU, within the game and how we can include these people within the governance structures of the game. And so... Um, essentially, from these few years, they've looked at how we can do that and we've developed 10 recommendations, which are now in action to actually start getting things going and actually creating a more diverse game, basically.
3: Could you, could you just give us an example, one or two of them? Because I, you know, I, I haven't got them in front of
4: me.
1: Okay, one of the recommendations? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my recommendation, for example, is I'm obviously on the National Youth Council and so we found that youth council isn't really like involved with anything decision-making wise. Um, so one of the, the recommendations is to make sure us as the youth council sit in on the council's meetings and that council members sit in on our meetings and we have a good relationship there. Um, but other um, recommendations look at the working practices and recruitment and things like that of council to look at perhaps why the council isn't ad- as diverse as it should be.
3: You must have the patience of the same because anything that I've had to do with council and the council one of you, it's driven me to distraction. It just made me want to stand up and shout and swear. (laughs)
1: Um, There are some amazing people in the council who are so open-minded that we work with, but also there are people like you probably witnessed um, in the club game. There are people that I've witnessed as a referee, that people that have very strong opinions aren't willing to listen. Um, But essentially, this working group has been made by the council. So whilst the council isn't as diverse as it should be, they've actually taken that first step and said, you know, we're not as diverse as we should be and we should be making changes towards it."
3: Because the more yeah. people you appeal to, the more people you have in the sport, and that's what we all want. And by the way, the, um, the old ways uh, have come to a stall now. We've, we've done as much as we can, I believe. We should carry on doing it and trying, you know, with, with men, with boys and whatever, the, the future of the game to actually grow it, you know, it is with girls, it is with minorities and so on. Um, and, and, and if people don't understand that, then frankly, you know, they're not looking at the evidence, are they?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, you see rugby at the elite level. England rugby would not, you know, I, our national team would not be as great as it is if we didn't have fantastic players like Ellis Gens, Sinclair, and all these people that, you know, choose to play for uh, England. Yeah. Um, you know, England's a fantastic, you know, Country for diversity, and rugby does reflect that. Um, and so, you know, I absolutely love rugby, and I want it to be accessible for everyone. Because playing with a rugby team and playing with a team full of random people is, you know, the best part of rugby.
3: Um, how has the pandemic affected all this? How have you have you got? How have you managed to cope with that and, and all these responsibilities?
1: Um, the pandemic has—it's got its pros and its cons, really. Um, obviously, I've had some major setbacks. with like most people having to work online and remotely and through Zoom calls and things. um, And that's been quite challenging because you don't get to develop the report that you would do, but also it has had some advantages in that. You know, with Zoom calls, usually you'd have to, you know, go to Twickenham for a meeting. um, But now I can just hop on a call and we get far more work done, practically. Mm
3: -hmm. Absolutely, and I think that's the way forward anyway. Um, yeah. The number of times you actually need to meet is is probably rather fewer than people think. Just finally, is it is it as simple as this for your uh, why you do all this, why you take all this time, why you, you do jobs which, um, frankly, some of us um, haven't got the patience for. Um, just, <laughs> just love the game.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I do it because you know I'm I as a ref, for example, when I come off the pitch, there are some so many fantastic people that I can meet in the bar and have a chat with. Um, and so whilst, you know, on the pitch, you know, they might not be the nicest people, off the pitch, they're fantastic. Um, you know, rugby's just given me such a good family, and I just want to keep, you know, learning and growing, and when I became a referee, I now, I'm now looking at, you know, should I become a coach? What, um, what do they call
3: you? Do they call you mum, or mademois? Or sir, <laughs> or, or what?
1: I tell them to call me sir. I don't really care too much about the uh, semantics of okay. ma'am. I've had um, someone call me mum,
3: and then they were like, "Miss, mom. and I think it confuses it a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Look, um, please keep doing what you're doing. Um, God knows, we need people who can stomach committee meetings and council meetings <laughs> and, and so on. You're a special breed. Uh, in fact, I've, <laughs> I've, I've found with all the Mitsubishi uh, Motors volunteers, they've been absolutely exemplary in, in whatever they've done. And you, you know, I can't say enough. The people who've kept rugby running, just standing still through the uh, pandemic, deserve a great deal of credit. You're one of them. Let's hope that your work with the RFU National Youth Council and the Diversity and Inclusion Working Group comes to the fruition that we uh, both believe and want uh, and know it should be. Thank you very much. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Thank you
3: very much, Brian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, throughout the series, we've heard some amazing stories from some truly inspirational Individuals, and I, I. This has been one of the best parts of the uh, of the podcast. This particular run, and thank you very much for the initiative of uh, Mitsubishi Motors, because the volunteer recognition program really does uh, give a, a little pat on the back to people who whose work glows largely unseen, ignored. There's such a lot of ignorance, um, especially if you're on social media, about what people do and don't do in our game, and when you actually hear it from the people who at the sharp end. It is really very humbling. As we head into 2021, Mitsubishi Motors will continue to show their support to volunteers through their Mitsubishi Motors volunteer recognition programme and by hosting the Volunteer of the Year Awards 2020 and 2021. Uh, another year undefeated for England's number one side, England's women, uh, What are they going to do in 2021? Why don't we ask the man who should know? It's Simon Middleton, England's women's head coach, who joins us now. Hello, Simon. Hi, Brian. How are we doing? Not too bad, mate. Look, uh, number one in the world, that's quite nice, obviously, but the World Cup isn't in your backyard. It's in New Zealand's backyard. Uh, We spoke to Eddie Jones about learning to deal with favouritism. Now, uh, do you think your favourite's going into this? Oh no!
2: I would say New Zealand are very much favourites, uh, particularly given the the, the added uh, sort of situation with COVID and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, we we like the other teams. We may have to go there and isolate before we even start the comp off and play in the backyard. World world champions as they are. So no, I think I think they're firm favourites. But uh, you know, that's, uh... that's a
3: good PR answer, Simon. Well done. Um... <laughs> Well, Eddie, Eddie says you've got to just bang the drum and say it. yeah we're favourites we'll deal with it don't we um, look if you haven't played New Zealand since uh, summer 2019 you're not going to get to face them before a potential World Cup clash and as you say you've had the Covid challenges uh, how much and what has been affected in particular by by the pandemic uh, in terms of your preparation
2: Uh I, th- I think it's like anything really. It, it's one of those things where when it first sort of descended on us, all we, we well we were we were all game off in the Six Nations. We were pretty well positioned, so nobody knew how long it was going to it was going to last. So we were very much about. Uh, just take quick stock of where we are. and Make sure we got uh, we got as many facilities available to the girls as, as possible, and and make sure that we, we we were able to come back whenever that was as prepped as possible. And I think uh, as it went on, we you know, we it actually. It actually helps us quite a bit in terms of learning different lessons, and and you know and how you deal with a bit of adversity and and how you adapt and you know we talk about the challenges going to to New Zealand. One of the things we we talked about uh, pre-COVID was the fact that you know this was going to be a competition where whatever happened, we were going to be away for the best part of seven, six, seven weeks. And you know it's a long way to be away from the people, that, and a long time to be away from the people you love and care about, and you know and the, and the support that networks around you so we we actually looked at the cold situation and we well this could actually be a really good rehearsal for what life's going to be like for seven weeks in, in New Zealand and, and and so right from the offset we, we were on the front foot with it uh, and and you know I, I suppose the the biggest effect he had was physically on players because you know, we, we've got an awful lot of good players uh, in our programme and I think you know the, the, the skill levels and the things they've learned, we knew we'd be able to pick them up quite quickly, particularly if the programme started again and we were back in the competition quickly. So the big challenge was making sure we stayed on top physically of the players and, uh, and because players had varying degrees of, of uh, facilities available to them, uh, we had to just make sure we knew exactly who had what what they could do. We got the right programs to them. We had, a, we had a, a specialist program for every player. We knew exactly what equipment they had. We did an inventory of every player to see what they had in terms of gear and availability <laughs> or resources. And uh, and so we it was a case of really staying on top of their physical situation so we could bring them back as, as, as strong as we could and in the best shape we could. And, uh, and that was the biggest challenge. Once we got back uh, sort of trained again, the skill and everything came back into play.
4: Uh, Simon, just thinking about the squad and adapting, like you've just touched on there. I guess one person that you'll have to adapt to life without is Katie Daly-McLean. How surprised were you with her decision to retire from international rugby? Uh,
2: I wasn't. I wasn't totally shocked by it because we we talked about it uh, probably twelve months ago, or a little bit less than that, probably eight months ago. You know, Katie Katie was, was really upfront. Uh, when, when Addy came along, uh, a, a baby girl and, you know, and, and knowing Katie, how I've come to know Katie, she, she'll only do something that she's 100% committed to it. She can give it everything she got. So there was always that, there was always that bit that this, this may happen. Uh, I, I, I did think once we got through the six nations, I thought, uh, and through the Autumn's, I thought, yeah, she, she, she'll, she'll go all the way to the world cup now. Uh, but she, she had a real clear picture about what she wanted to do, and uh, she she was you know, when we spoke, she was she was as honest as she's ever been about about where she saw herself and what the impact that would have on the program, uh, and and she just you know she, so she said Look, I'm going to I'm going to step down from international rugby. So I was a little bit surprised, but I wasn't
3: shocked. Um, Simon, one of the things that I I felt I saw. Um, you know, in past clashes against New Zealand, was that their halfbacks, I wouldn't say had a total edge, but seemed to have a slight edge in terms of the quality and the length of their kicking, um, certainly from hand, and that their front five, um, you know, were, were very powerful. And those two, those two uh, areas are crucial. How are you shaping up relative to, to them? You know, in those particular aspects.
2: Well, I think I think front five wise, uh, you know they're, they're New Zealanders because they very different sides to us. I mean they're they're hugely physically in terms of they've got some very big players. They, they've got some 120 kg players which we can't even get closer. So we have to adapt our game accordingly. Now you know our front five are very mobile. So for us it's about getting getting the right game on the field at the right time i think what we've what we've been guilty of in the past with new zealand and and not just our doing but they've been very tactically, tactically smart second half of the world cup in particular of probably the last 15 minutes of the world cup into the round 17 if they get the ball on their terms it's very difficult to get it off them and you know they they if they shorten their game up it's very difficult to get the ball off them so we have to play a game that Suits us in terms of mobility, getting around the field, but also in terms of being able to look after the ball and not give them too much possession. So I think the the front five thing—I think technically, there's—you know—I would back us against any squad in the world, and that, that certainly includes New Zealand. We have to get the right game on the field for our front five. I think you are doing when we play New Zealand next time because they can strangle the life out of it. You've only got to go back to the, the men's world cup to see, you know, what effect, you know, that, that type of front five can have on, on a fixture. I think the kicking game, I, to be honest, I I probably disagree a little bit there, Brian. I, I think, I think New Zealand have got, uh, had a better kicking game than us, but I think over the last four or five years, I mean we've probably moved away from from them a little bit. I think, the nature of rugby in Australia is very, it's very more, very much more natural to them. So for a long time, they were naturally better kickers than us. But we've got, we we've invested a lot of time into our kicking game. It's a real strong point of our of our game. It's still a part of our game that is massively developing in different ways. Uh, but we've got a whole range of kickers who can probably kick the ball longer than any any players in, in the women's game in World Rugby at the moment and we've got a number of those players so our game's going to be built around utilising the options we've got making sure we play in the right areas of the field and our kicking game will be massively important in that so you know huge, huge parts of the game both of them from, from five player and, and kicking game but I'm really confident that we'll be where we want to be when we when we get to New Zealand
3: Simon so, mean, just, just fine. this is a general question about women's rugby Uh, In England in general, they are going to face the extent of cuts that have been mandated by uh, the RFU losing money uh, due to COVID. Um, But obviously, um, the women's game is is the one growth area, uh, the biggest growth area in the England game. Now, how badly do you think the women's game will be affected? And what would you say to the rugby authorities when they come to prioritise spending? Um, when they see how much they do or don't have for the forthcoming year? Well, I,
2: I think, you know, like, like like every sport and every business, we're going to have to cut our cloth accordingly. But I think the RFU cut their cloth pretty much as things stand at the moment. And, and what I would say is they've been unbelievably supportive over the last... Even, even before before COVID because, you know, the RFU, you know, is well documented the financial troubles that the RFU had well before COVID. But at a time when we were making people redundant, the RFU still invested in 28 contracts in the women's game. And rightly so, uh, but they recognised, you know, their responsibility. And also, I think the, you know, the the, the huge value that, that the, the women's game has and the place it has within uh, within. The the, the the RFU and within you know our sporting heritage as such, I think. Uh so uh, you know, I I'm really confident that the RFU will continue to, to back us prudently but appropriately, uh, over the course of next the, the, the next year and, and well beyond, you know, whenever whenever we talk about the, the the women's game, it's always about longevity, it's always about it's not about what we're going to do just next year It's about what we're going to do to keep growing the game and moving the game forward uh so uh, I, I think the i have been massively supportive of the women's game and, and and you know that's been reflected in in hopefully in the success we've had over the, the certainly over the last 18 months two years uh and will continue to be reflected hopefully as we go to two thousand and twenty one because uh, you know ultimately you know, we, we we know that the responsibility we've got and and, and uh, we're going to be doing our very best in, in New Zealand to, to make sure we deliver on that.
3: Well, I, I was going to wish you uh, well in New Zealand. I won't, I'll tell you why, because I'm sure I want to speak to you before you go. So I wish you well nearer the time. But it's great to speak to you uh, yet again. Simon Middleton, England's women's head coach. Thank you. Cheers, Brian. Turning to the Gallagher Premiership, another win for the defending champions, Exeter, beat Gloucester. Um, can't see at the moment uh, anyone getting, well, not, not not getting near them, but uh, they're, they're still uh, quite heavy favourites for me to, uh, to to repeat the success of last year.
4: Yeah, they are just picked up where they left off. Just this machine now that is just rumbling and rumbling. I mean, Gloucester made it tricky for them in in patches, but never close enough that it looked like Exeter were going to lose. And again, you're thinking who is really going to push them? Who's really going to test them? I mean, Bristol might be one team that in the way that they play and in the style that we play, if we look at how Gloucester did cause Exeter problems, a team that looks to move the ball around, that looks to play and potentially has the game plan, the attacking weapons as well, to, to cause Exeter and problems. Um, that aside, I don't see anybody that has consistently shown that they're ready to take them on. I mean, I know I, took, I look at the top four now. I, I see Newcastle there who are four from four. But, you know, if Newcastle and Exeter were to play the final tomorrow, you would put your mortgage on the Chiefs or maybe not if you're a Falcons fan. But I just think, you know, it's the other teams are playing catch up, you know, and it's up to another team to prove that they have, The physical game as well, but defensively, that they can match Exeter's power more than anything else, because we just see time and time again how deadly they are. They get within five meters, and it's it's a when they're going to score, not if. So uh, the other teams have got a lot of work to do.
3: Uh, Looking at um, uh, the uh, other end of the table, I mean, too early uh, at the moment to start talking about who's who's going to end up bottom and whatever. But um, you know. Leicester seem to have made a bit of progress, but not as much as I thought they, they, they might make. They still look to me to be, to be in a bit of trouble.
4: Yeah, I think Leicester will be a slow burner just because of how much disruption they've had in terms of personnel, in terms of players being away, coming back. You know, their England contingent will be back for a couple of weeks through Europe and then they go again. So kind of having that disruption to your team while you're also trying to figure out a new identity under a new coaching structure. You know, they had a couple of last-minute changes to the coaching structure as well. A few people left off the field. So there's still so much evolving with Leicester that I think it's probably going to take some time for them to settle down and really get into their stride for Borthwick to mould them into the side that he wants them to be. And, well, not the unfortunate thing, but with this Gallagher Premiership, no team is going to give you that time. And if you're slow starting and you get left behind, all of a sudden you cut adrift at the bottom of the league and you, you start panicking and it becomes more and more difficult to imprint kind of your blueprint on the team. So they need to turn things around quick, almost maybe find like a stock system that works for them for now and look to try and involve on that as and when they get opportunities. But it, it could be a tough season for them again.
3: Well, Saracens are one club that uh, traditionally would have been challenging uh, Exeter, uh, but they're obviously going to be in the Championship. But that's not going to start, it doesn't look like, till um, at least March, which means a number of their England players won't have had a competitive game uh, until then. Um, I'm in two minds about this. In, you know, the, the, the Saracens players who are in the England set up, we know they can play, we know they're England quality. Um, Just a case of them being England and international sharp. Um, Is that possible? Um, What will the effects of a championship season, if any, be on them?
4: It's not impossible. And you would think if anybody can do it, it's probably that contingent because of how the club will look after them. I've seen talks, you know, them putting together their own, their own little fixture list, their own cup before the league gets underway. Um, if you think of the amount of rugby those guys have played over the last few years, actually the opportunity to really kind of tailor off their number of games.
3: I agree with that completely.
4: Yeah. Yeah. They might end up playing 12 to 15 games in a, where they normally hit high thirties. So you almost have no idea how invaluable that is in terms of recovery, in terms of preparation, in terms of the latter stages of their career. So actually they could come to the Lions tour and be the freshest, of all the players, have huge energy, huge hunger, and I, I could imagine that it won't take them that long to get battle ready. You know, there's one or two fixtures. There is the Lions game up at Murrayfield as well. So Saracens will get them as prepared as they need to do. England will do the same, and they'll make sure that if those guys are in contention, that they're ready to go. No doubt about it.
3: Well, finally, uh, top seat. Look, uh, difficult, very difficult question. This uh, Crystal Ball. Any major predictions for rugby domestically, internationally in 2021? Or was it more a series of hopes?
4: <laughs> I mean, gosh, I would have said no until I saw the, 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 uh, the Rainbow Cup announcement. I mean, to be honest, I, I can't see any major shocks, changes, just because I think I touched on it earlier. The next six, 12 months is about getting back on their feet, kind of breathing life back into the game from the top tier all the way down, you know, getting fans back in stadium, getting revenue back in the game, getting people back playing rugby. You know, I I know some people won't have played a proper game of rugby for well over a year, you know, with all the adaptations that have come in because of COVID and close contact. So you've got problems like that that really need solving. So I I think it's it's a slow burner Small steps to getting the game back to where it was. And then maybe when we get to that point, looking at how we really kind of plug the cracks that were shown were probably there for a long time. I think COVID has really just widened them and really shined the light on it. So it's how do we fix those sorts of things about how the game is governed as a whole. I think that's for a later date.
3: Uh, very wise, very wise words. Not tabloidy at all, mate. You, you're not coming on here again. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, look, I, 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 I agree with you. I just hope rugby comes out uh, in the end of 21 you know, in, in, a, in a shape which resembles the way it started in 2020. Um, there, there, but, but what I would say is this, um, as I've written on several occasions, there is a chance for certain sections of rugby um, lawmakers, as uh, referees as well, to look at what is wrong with the game, which doesn't need a lot of cash throwing at it to make it better and to seize this opportunity. Because if they don't do it now, when well, they've got this imperative, it makes you wonder when they ever will do. And that's all we've got time for on this week's Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. A huge thank you to my co-host Topsy Ojo Audio and to all our guests today and over the last 10 weeks. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe... And check out some of our previous ones. And to stay up to date on all things sport, head to the forward slash contact, where listeners can get 30 days access to all the Telegraph's premium sports coverage completely free. We'll be taking a short break just before our return for the Six Nations of next year. So until then, have a very happy and safe New Year. For now, goodbye.
2: Full contact in association with
4: Mitsubishi Motors, drive your ambition.